director of the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Library and Museum. It's a great pleasure to welcome you this evening for the opening event in the museum's new Teddy Roosevelt show, better known as TR. We are extremely pleased to have with us Professor Bill Brands, author of TR, The Last Romantic, with us this evening. In addition, we are very happy to be hosting the other speakers from across the country who are here participating in the War and Empire Conference sponsored by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. We're delighted to have all of you with us this evening for what promises to be a very engaging event. Before we go on, I'd like to ask uh, your indulgence in turning off cell phones, please, uh, or putting them on uh, to uh, whatever other system you have uh, for the benefit of the group. As you may know, the Ford Museum here in Grand Rapids represents only one half of the Ford Presidential Library. The library archives are located in Ann Arbor on the campus of the University of Michigan, where President Ford went to university and played football to great acclaim. We are the only presidential library with two sites in two locations 130 miles apart. And as I said to a couple of people this evening, I think I'm a homeless person and I just live in my car going back and forth between. <laughs> While we have facilities and staff in two locations, we operate as one institution under the aegis of the National Archives and Records Administration. In addition, we are most fortunate to have the invaluable support of the Gerald R. Ford Foundation which makes possible all of our feature exhibits, public programs, education, research support, and community events. In brief, the way it works is the federal government provides funding for basic operations, and everything else we do is made possible by the Ford Foundation. I would like to acknowledge the wonderful support of the chairman of the Ford Foundation, Marty Allen, for his leadership and support. Unfortunately, he cannot be with us tonight because there are two, how could there be, but two competing events here in Grand Rapids at which two of our board members, Peter Cook and David Fry, are being honored tonight. Marty hasn't mastered cloning himself, so he sends his regrets. But uh, we're, we're very wonderfully supported by Marty and the entire foundation board. If you have enjoyed the exhibits and programs at the library and museum over time, and especially this evening's program and opening exhibit, I hope you will consider becoming a friend of Ford, which will provide you with advance notice of upcoming events at both of our locations. We have brochures out in the lobby and we have staff available to answer any questions you might have. It is really and truly only through your personal support that we are able to partner with Grand Valley and the Hauenstein Center to present this type of quality program. The Teddy Roosevelt exhibition opening this evening is the culmination of a long 18 months of research, negotiation, and planning on the part of Ford Museum staff. Unlike some of our other recent exhibits on loan from the Library of Congress or the Smithsonian, this show has been entirely planned, coordinated, and executed by our staff. I'd like to recognize Jim Kratzis, our deputy director who curated the exhibit, Don Holloway, Jamie Draper, and Bettina Demitz, all of whom helped to design and execute the displays. Please join me in recognizing their creative talents and a lot of hard work. Great job. They love doing it, and I love being a part of watching them put together a show like this. It's really, really very exciting. In addition to the Ford Museum's participation in the War and Empire series with the Hauenstein Center, 
I want to alert you that we will be hosting Janik Miskowski, author of a new book titled Gerald Ford and the Challenges of the 1970s. Professor Miskowski will be presenting back-to-back -back programs, speaking here at the museum on Wednesday, October 26th, and then at the library in Ann Arbor on Thursday the 27th. In another back-to-back -back program, we're hosting Maria Downs, Mrs. Ford's former social secretary, at events related to our holiday displays at both sites. And she'll be on, I think it's December 2nd and 3rd, uh, again, in, uh, first in Ann Arbor and then here at the museum. There's a table in the lobby right outside the doors with calendars of upcoming events, and we hope you'll pick up one of those. Before turning the program over to my colleague to introduce our speaker, I want to share great news from the President and Mrs. Ford. They are doing very well, and as we speak, they are in transit from Colorado back to their uh, primary home in Rancho Mirage, California. President Ford is now 92 years young and is still swimming and playing a little golf. There's another person I'd like to recognize who is key to this evening's program, and that is Ralph Hauenstein, sponsor of the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies. Ralph, would you let us salute you and thank you for all of your support. And Now to the main event. It is my pleasure to introduce the director of the Hauenstein Center and the creator of the website, Ask Gleaves, Mr. Gleaves Whitney, who will introduce our distinguished speaker. Gleaves? Thank you very much, Elaine. And uh, I also want to second all the people who were acknowledged here. It's a great team of people who put programs like this together, and uh, a lot of hard work went in to making nights like tonight possible. So to all of you, I, I second those accolades. Well, if you were to picture the complete historian, what would come to mind? Who would come to mind? No doubt your historian would love his subject, be eager to share it with others, be an inspiring teacher, and maybe even happen to uh, work in uh, one of the top universities in the world. No doubt uh, this person would be an eminent scholar who pulls some of the most interesting insights in our current debates and discussions out of the archives, out of the libraries. The person's writing would show respect for readers by acknowledging that a lot competes for a reader's attention these days. So the writing has to be compelling. The author has, as it were, to make a contract with the reader. Every time you get to the bottom of that page, what's going to make you continue to turn it? This historian has to have that ability and have the added bonus of some literary grace while he's at it. You would want an historian who could write about America's founders, say somebody like Benjamin Franklin, and be nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for the effort. You would want somebody who could write intelligently about America's place in the world and earn many, many of the greatest accolades in our culture for his literary and historical efforts and somebody who often is consistently on the New York Times bestseller lists. You would want someone who could come to the Gerald R. Ford Museum and uh, be here for the opening of a major exhibit, like the one on TR, and give an insightful, entertaining talk. And not only about TR, but about many other presidents, as you'll see in his style of presentation. In short, ladies and gentlemen, you would want H.W. Brands. Please join me in welcoming him to Grand Rapids.
you, Glees, for that very kind introduction. Thank you to the Howenstein Center for sponsoring this lecture and the conference today. Thank you to the Gerald Ford Museum and Library for having me here, and thank you all for coming tonight. I know there are other things that you could be doing, but you decided to come and listen to me, so that's very flattering. I, I teach, that's my day job, and I, well, I'd like to think that I'm fairly interesting for my students, but I know perfectly well that if there were a midterm coming up or if they didn't have to, if, well, in, in Texas, all undergraduates have to take two semesters of American history. So I know that if there weren't some compulsion, um, a lot of, maybe most of the, the chairs in my lecture hall would be empty. So you didn't, you didn't have to come, but here you are. So I'm going to take that as a good sign. Um, I was uh, asked to speak on Theodore Roosevelt in the context of a conference on war and empire. Well, if there is a president who directly connects to those issues of war and empire better than any other, it would be Theodore Roosevelt. In fact, one of the discussants this afternoon uh, was saying jokingly that uh, they were considering, you're having, a, I guess, a talk last night, some of were, about this question of war and empire, and they were trying to decide uh, which one they should be for, maybe which one they should, should be against, as though this were a juxtaposition. Well, I can report that Theodore Roosevelt was heartily in favor of both. Now, this is a little bit unusual. And the reason I want to talk about Theodore Roosevelt, aside from the fact that there is this wonderful exhibit upstairs that you all need to go see. In fact, it's the best exhibit on Theodore Roosevelt that I've ever seen. There's stuff there that I didn't even know existed. And there's nothing like being able to see the artifacts themselves. I'm a historian, and so I tend to deal with the printed, the written word, diaries, and they're Theodore Roosevelt's diaries up there. And letters, well, there are letters up there. But we tend not to deal with the objective stuff. And this is the first time I ever came face to face with one of the rhinoceroses that Theodore Roosevelt came face to face with. And the gun, the rifle that he used to stop that rhinoceros just a few feet before it got to where he was standing. And if the rifle hadn't worked, if his shot had not been true, actually, he did have backup people firing a whole fusillade at the rhino. <laughs> Nonetheless, American history would have been different. Anyway, I'm not sure how many of you have been at any of the discussions today, but they have concentrated on this question of war and empire. And how it is, well, one of the basic, one of the first questions, and I'm sure some of you perhaps attended the debate a month ago or so on war and, excuse me, is there an American empire? Is the United States an empire? And this is a very interesting and uh, provocative subject. I'm going to share a personal experience I had just to give you an idea of how people react to the idea that the United States might be an empire. I was, uh, about a year or two ago, I, there's a, a book festival that Texas puts on every year. Actually, it was created by uh, Laura Bush when she was First Lady of Texas, and now she's going to be First Lady of the United States, and in fact, reproduced it in Washington. There's a national book festival. Anyway, the Texas Book Festival asked me, for some strange reason, to be auctioned off as a dinner guest. And so somebody could buy a dinner, and then, I mean, people would bid on it, and they could invite eight of their friends, and they could sit around and uh, listen to me talk about history. Well, anyway, somebody did this, and so I was invited to come speak. I mean, speak, I got to have a very nice dinner, and just have a nice conversation. And so the, the discussion turned to what I and my classes had been talking about lately, and what my style of teaching is, and what kind of things we discuss. And I pointed out that I have often found it very engaging for students to relate history, which is what I teach, 
to the present. And it just so happened that that very day, we had been talking about, on the one hand, American expansion during the 1890s, and it occurred to me that there were some instructive parallel questions, at least. Whether there were parallel conclusions to be drawn was the issue. But there were parallel questions to be asked regarding American expansion of influence, let's say, oh, I don't know, in the Middle East today, in Iraq. And as I say, this was uh, last spring when this was happening. And so I was speaking, describing to this group what was going on, and they were all relaxed, and they were fine. They were interested to know, because many of I teach at the University of Texas. And I, I would say that probably most of the people at this dinner table, there were about eight or ten people there, were um, alumni, an alumni of the University of Texas. So they wanted to know what's going on at the old 40 acres these days. And, um, and so I was, they were very interested in all of this. And I got to the point where I was saying, okay, well, now, what happened in the 1890s is commonly discussed under the, the label, the rubric, of American imperialism. And so I simply asked my students, well, what do you think? Um, can American actions in Iraq today be considered as a form of imperialism? Now, I probably should tell you something about the makeup of the, the dinner guests, the, particularly of their political views. They, um, I can say to a person, they were conservative. Actually, there was one, one other guest there who was a fellow faculty member who wasn't so conservative. But everybody else was conservative. And as soon as I mentioned the word, they had no problem with the word imperialism in the context of the 1890s. But as soon as I even raised the question of imperialism with respect to American policy today, there was this chill that descended on the dinner <laughs> conversation. And I could almost see the hackles rising on the, the backs of the necks. And I, I, I should tell you, this was uh, the second year when I had done this. And I guess they liked me the first year. Um, and uh, well, they didn't invite me to do it again this year. <laughs> anyway, so I'm not sure exactly what to conclude from this, except that obviously, for Americans, the notion that the United States might be an empire is a very sensitive topic. And it's fair to ask why this is so. And that's one of the questions I'm going to discuss. And I should point out that it hasn't always been so. And in fact, Theodore Roosevelt, for one, didn't shy away from the concept of imperialism or from the, the word imperialism. Theodore Roosevelt was, well, I actually, I have to qualify that a little bit. When he became president and he was soliciting people's votes, then he avoided the term imperialism to some degree. More precisely, when he was president, uh, this, is the, the, the audio okay? You're all right? Okay. Um, but when, before he became president, and after he left the White House, he was quite candid about it. Okay, so bear that in mind. I'm all, I also want to examine something about Theodore Roosevelt, his, his attitudes toward war. Because in this regard, Roosevelt is almost unique. In fact, almost unique in American history. I'm not going to say he's unique in world history. But the thing that makes Roosevelt so curious is that, well, Nearly, well, every American president that I can think of 
and I can't think of an exception to this, every American president has been prepared to take the country to war if necessary. And this reflects, I think, well, I'm sure, the general attitude of the American people, that war is sometimes necessary. However, I think it's fair to say that throughout American history, and I'm going to guess for every president besides Roosevelt, war might have been considered sometimes necessary, but it was always considered to be a necessary evil. And that's the way the world works. Sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes bad people do things to undefended countries, and so the United States must take action. Theodore Roosevelt is, as far as I know, the only president to be on record as saying war was a good thing. And war was something that should be approached hopefully. And that a country that didn't go to war often enough was a country that got morally flabby. Now, you have to, you gotta scratch your head at somebody like this. Is this the person you want to be commander in chief of the United States? Well, we're gonna talk about that because paradoxically, as much as Roosevelt glorified war, Roosevelt was very careful not to take the United States into war. So maybe it's a case, I don't know, is this a, there must be some Freudian concept going on here, where the more you talk about something, the less you're likely to do it, or maybe the people you have to worry about are the ones who don't talk about war, or the ones who say, you know, we'll never go to war sort of thing, I would think take you into war. Uh, I'll mention that uh, there's a, a famous line, at least famous among presidential historians, uh, that Woodrow Wilson, uttered just before he became president, just before he was inaugurated. And he turned to one of his friends and he said, it would be an irony of fate if foreign affairs played a large role in my administration. Well, of course, this was the person who took the United States into World War I, the biggest thing the United States did in foreign affairs in its history until then. Anyway, the discussion so far today, and most of you, I'm sure, obviously, most of you weren't there, but basically it focused on the motives of American imperialism, if you want to call it that, the motives for American expansion, it looked at sort of big picture questions of manifest destiny, of notions of a Republican empire, Republican virtue, what it meant for the United States to expand across America in the 19th century. I'm going to focus on, I'm going to look at sort of the micro version of that macro version. And in particular, look at one individual, Theodore Roosevelt, and his attitudes toward war, his attitudes toward empire, and how these changed over time. And one of the things that I want to ask you to reflect on, and this, this is one I, I post to my students all the time, at least once or twice or three times every semester. And that is, here's a, this is, oh, in fact, I have a survey, a class of, uh, it's a survey class of American history, 1865 to the present. And I tell the students at the beginning, on their syllabus, I tell them what the two questions on the final exam are going to be. And one question is going to be, it has to do with domestic affairs and how and why the boundary, the perceived boundary between the public sector and the private sector has shifted over time. But the second question has to do with foreign affairs. And the question is this, how is it that a nation, a people, the American people, who I think sincerely believe themselves to be peace-loving, how is it that this country over the last 200 years has gone to war more often than any other country in the world. What's going on here? It does raise, and this is the question that I raise with my, my classes, it, it raises the question of, is there something attractive about war? 
You know, if war is just a bad thing, if it's a, an unhappy accident, if it's something to be avoided, you have to wonder how it is that this country, and I, I single out the United States because I teach American history, but one could examine other countries in this regard as well. You know, how is it that the country finds itself in war so often? Is it a whole bunch of unhappy accidents? Or is there something actually attractive about war? And I want you to consider it. I don't have an answer to that question. And I don't answer it for my students. In part, I ask them to ask it of themselves. Because as I point out to them, as I look out across the, my classroom full of 18, 19, and 20 year olds, you are the soldiers of this country. In fact, historically, you are the soldiers of the world. The, war, the, the world's wars are fought by 19 year olds. And so I ask them just to look at themselves. Is there something appealing about war to you? So anyway, I'm going to look at Theodore Roosevelt. Although, Gleaves hinted at the fact that I might be bringing in other presidents. I have uh, a motive for that, and the motive you'll see stacked up on the tables outside <laughs> after we leave. I have to announce, my publisher insists that I announce that I have a new biography of Andrew Jackson that just came out uh, yesterday. And so you're going to get him hot off the press, if you get him, which I hope you do. Um, and I should say that, um, and oh, there are also biographies of Theodore, my favorite biography of Theodore Roosevelt out there, so make a nice matched set. Anyway, <laughs> so I've been racking my brain to think of what unites Theodore Roosevelt and Andrew Jackson, and how can I bring Andrew Jackson into this conversation? Well, two things come immediately to mind. One is that both became president by virtue of being military heroes. Now, in fact, this, is some, this does get at this question of war, empire, presidencies, and the like. Because the path to the White House has often been trod most easily by military heroes. And it's fair asking what this says about the American electorate and the American political system. Because on its face, the kind of talents that lend to success in the army, success at command of the military, are not the same as you would expect out of a political leader. You know, it would be one thing, there's kind of an obvious connection between, let's say, a governor and a president. So if you're a good governor, you maybe, presumably, would make a good president. George W. Bush was governor of Texas before he became president of the United States. That's an obvious connection. It's less obvious, at least to me, on the face of it, from command of the military to the White House. And so it's fair asking, what's going on here? And is, does, it have, does it bear on this question I ask whether there's something positively attractive about war? You know, as much as we are horrified by the number of people who get killed, and as much as we're put off by the destruction that war wrecks, you know, maybe to some people, maybe to a lot of people, maybe in a way that a lot of people don't want to admit, there is something positively attractive about war. Okay, so the one connection, the obvious connection between uh, Andrew Jackson and Theodore Roosevelt is they both became presidents by virtue of being military heroes. Neither one would have had a chance at the White House if not for their military careers. Now the other one is, I'm not sure if it's uh, a less honorable distinction, and I can't even claim that Theodore Roosevelt qualifies in this regard, but I've had this discussion with Gleaves and with a number of other people. I think that Andrew Jackson is the only president to have, well, he's the only president I know who killed a man with his own hand. And I can, I, I know for a fact, he's the only man to have killed a president, uh, the only president 
to have killed somebody in what you really could call cold blood. Now, this doesn't sound like much of a recommendation. I guess you, the cold blood was actually a duel. So does that count as cold blood? I don't know. But anyway, he did. Now, Theodore Roosevelt liked to brag that he had killed somebody. Um, but I think he was actually just boasting. When uh, the, the attack on San Juan Hill in the Spanish-American War, Theodore Roosevelt led his troops, or the Rough Riders, up, up the hill. And at the end of the battle, he writes home to his friend Henry Cabot Lodge. And he said, and he, in, at the end of this long description of the battle, just as an afterthought, he says, oh, and did I tell you? I shot, I killed a Spaniard. And he says, and then he goes on to say, well, at least I think I did. Um, but it was kind of, there's a lot of smoking, it was kind of hard to tell, and the guy was running away. Uh, but in subsequent letters, the more often he tells the story, the more certain he is. So that by, you know, three months later, he's darn certain that he's killed a Spaniard. Anyway, now, you may ask, well, why do I even mention this? Well, in part because from the standpoint of somebody who's trying to write a life story, it really helps a lot if your guy has, well, killed somebody. Because you've got to have a dark side to the story. It can't all be sweetness and light. In fact, I wrote a book, I wrote a couple books in the last few years. One on roughly the same time period. Um, one had to do with the California Gold Rush. And the other had to do with the Texas Revolution, including the Battle of the Alamo. And people would ask me, well, okay, you know, these are roughly the same time period. The California Gold Rush is in the 1840s and 1850s, and the Texas Revolution is in the 1830s. And what do you see is uh, similar? What do you see is difference? And I thought about it for a while, and the conclusion that I came up with was that, well, in many respects, the Texas story is more compelling. And they would ask, why is that so? Well, because the California Gold Rush is a happy story. Everybody goes out there to get rich. And they don't all get rich. And some of them, give them die of disease or accident or something. But on the whole, it's a good time tale. On the other hand, you all, we all know, the Battle of the Alamo, they all die. And just from a dramatic standpoint, you know, what are Shakespeare's great plays? The tragedies. And because somebody's got to die anyway. Well, because it does, from the, the standpoint of the person telling the story, it really, it really makes you get right to the heart of what is important to this person. In Theodore Roosevelt, case, I think it's very significant that he boasted of having killed someone, even if maybe he didn't actually do it. In Andrew Jackson's case, he didn't boast about it at all. In fact, it was too serious for that. This man had insulted his wife, and therefore he had to, he had to meet Jackson in a duel, and Jackson was utterly serious about this, and killed the man, and didn't try to hide the fact, you insulted my wife, you will pay. Anyway, okay. Let's look at Theodore Roosevelt. Let me tell you a little bit about his life, a little bit about his career, and how war and empire fit into this. Theodore Roosevelt was born just before the Civil War. This is absolutely significant. Had he been born 10 years earlier, had he been born 10 years later, he would not have turned out the way he did, especially with regard to his attitudes toward war. He was born into what could be called a mixed family. His father was a northerner. His mother was from Georgia. And the family was living in New York City during the war. New York City was a hotbed of copperheadism. There were a lot of Democrats in New York, and a lot of them didn't think much of the whole idea of fighting the South 
as they would have said to free the slaves. What do we want to free the slaves for? They're, they're not any business of ours. Theodore Roosevelt's mother and his maternal grandmother, who lived with the family, prepared care packages for Confederate soldiers in the family home. When the South, when the Confederates would win victories, they would raise the Confederate flag outside the house. Now, Theodore Roosevelt's father was a good unionist, but not all that good. He was strongly behind Lincoln and the Union war effort, but because of his wife's objections, Theodore Roosevelt Sr. did not serve in the Union Army. He took a civilian position, one that he was an allotment commissioner. He went around to the Union camps to try to, to persuade the Union soldiers to allot a certain amount of their paychecks, be taken out of their paychecks, and sent to their wives or their families to support the families while they were off fighting. And Theodore Roosevelt Sr. almost certainly did more for the Union war effort in that capacity than he would have done serving on some general staff. However, to young Theodore Roosevelt, it just wasn't the same thing. Young Theodore Roosevelt sided with his father. He identified with his father. And in fact, there are stories, his sister would tell the stories of how young Theodore, who was five years old um, in 1863, would kneel down by the side of his bed before going to bed to say his evening prayers. And he would pray to God to, and this is the, the quote from young Theodore, to grind the southern troops to powder. Now, he, would, he said this while his mother was sitting right beside him. She was rooting for the southern troops. Anyway, it was a wrenching experience for young Theodore Roosevelt. He was able to transcend it to some degree as he got older, in part because precisely because his father had not served in the military. But a couple of his uncles, his mother's brothers, had. And the family went traveling to Europe after the war when he met a couple of his uncles who were living in exile. They were Confederate officers. And so rather than suffer under the political disabilities of Reconstruction, they lived in England. And young Theodore Roosevelt would go over and hear war stories from his uncles. He didn't have any war stories from his father. Now, I need to tell you that Theodore Roosevelt thought, or at least said he thought, that his father was, and I quote here, the best man he ever knew. Theodore Roosevelt thought his father was a great man. It's probably significant that Theodore Roosevelt's father died when Theodore Roosevelt was 20 years old. And the reason I say this is significant um, for those of you in the audience who are, most of you look like you are, old enough to have become adults, to become adult children of your parents, one of the things you realize, we realize as we get older and we become adults ourselves, is that our parents are just ordinary people. And especially if the parents get old enough where they become, let's say, frail or in health, and they become somewhat dependent on their children. And you get this role reversal. But Theodore Roosevelt never had that experience with his father. His father died in what otherwise would have been the prime of life. He suffered uh, from intestinal cancer. And he died very quickly. Uh, so Theodore Roosevelt never saw his father get old, never saw his father become dependent on him. 
always held out his father as this ideal figure. And in fact, Theodore Roosevelt said for much of the rest of his life that whenever he was faced with some kind of moral conundrum, what should I do? He asked himself, what would my father have done? Or what would I be proud to have told my father? So his father sort of stood above and behind him as his conscience. And he was this ideal figure in Theodore Roosevelt's life. Except there was this one flaw, this one thing in which Theodore Roosevelt Sr. had failed. And that was he hadn't served in the military. He hadn't taken up arms in defense of his country. Now, Theodore Roosevelt, he had two sisters. He had an older sister and a younger sister. And his younger sister, the one who knew him best, said in later years, after she watched what became of Theodore Roosevelt, she believed, she was convinced, that Theodore Roosevelt's obsession, that was the term she used, his obsession with the military. I'll take that opportunity to take sip. His obsession with the military had everything to do with the fact that their father had not served <coughs> under arms. And it was as though the son, Theodore Roosevelt, wanted to redeem his father, to make up for this one flaw in his father by serving in the military. Now, that seems to be a little bit too pat, too simple an explanation. But I think there's a lot to do with it that has a lot to do with what happened, especially when you multiply it across an entire generation. Now, you're all familiar with the phenomenon of nostalgia for World War II. Some of you, I know, are veterans of World War II. And I suppose you appreciate the fact that you've been labeled the greatest generation in history, I suppose. You know, maybe not just American history, but in history. And the generation of World War II is certainly to be applauded. You can also appreciate the fact, however, that simply by labeling your generation the greatest generation, my generation and the generation of my students come across looking second best. And what is it that you did that we haven't done or we didn't do? Well, you fought in the Great War. You saved democracy. Now, back it up 100 years, and you can imagine what Theodore Roosevelt's generation felt and thought sitting around for two or three decades after the Civil War. And they would hear all the war stories and how so-and-so fought with Grant and so-and-so was on the march through Georgia with Sherman. And even once the reconciliation between North and South set in, how he served with Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee. And even if the older generation didn't say so explicitly, even if there was no Tom Brokaw for that generation, there certainly was the implication that you guys just don't have it. At the very least, you haven't proven that you have it. Now, it's clear to me in looking at the life of Theodore Roosevelt that this is involved, that Theodore Roosevelt felt he hadn't won his spurs until he fought in a war. And the reason I know this is I told you that Theodore Roosevelt talked glorified war. He said that war was a good thing. This all comes about during the 1890s. Theodore Roosevelt turns 32 in 1890. Okay, so he's reaching kind of the prime of manhood. And his political career is, well, it started off really fast. He went into New York uh, state elected politics, and he was 
the leader of the Republicans in the New York, uh, New York Assembly, the lower house of the New York State Legislature, at the age of 23 or 24. As he put it, quite honestly, he said, I entered the legislature and I rose like a rocket. And he did. But then personal tragedy hit. His wife, the love of his life, died in childbirth. And it just so happened that his mother died on the very same day in the same house. Um, it's, it's quite clear that he was much more distraught at the death of his wife than of his mother. In fact, there's a really interesting phenomenon. In his autobiography, he spends pages and pages in detail on his father. His mother rates a single, really vague paragraph. My mother was a good woman sort of thing. So anyway, his father had died when he was in college. His mother dies now. He's a couple years out of college, but his wife dies. And he decides that he has to leave the arena of his personal tragedy. He leaves New York City, where he's been living. He leaves New York State. He goes off to the Dakotas. And he becomes a cowboy. He had just purchased a ranch. He was also, I mentioned, he was very rich because he inherited a lot of money from his father. So he invested it in a ranch, a couple of ranches actually that he combined, in what's now North Dakota, in the southwestern portion, yeah, southwestern portion of North Dakota. And in the next couple of years, he managed to lose it all. Uh, partly because he was, wasn't a very good rancher, partly because uh, there was bad weather, partly because the range was overstocked. And the whole idea of ranching in North Dakota is a chancy business anyway. But he, so he turned back to politics. He ran for mayor of New York and lost. He got appointed to a couple of positions, but he was somebody who turned out to be essentially unelectable. And this is a serious burden for a politician. Um, <laughs> It actually, it, it actually doesn't preclude a political career, but what it means is you can be appointed to positions, you just can't get elected. And you know, there's a, a glass ceiling for somebody like that. The, here's, here's the basic problem, and this has to do with that Civil War background of Theodore Roosevelt and the personal background. Theodore Roosevelt became a member of the Republican Party. And from a historical, from a personal, from a geographic perspective, he had no choice but to become a Republican. Because during the 1860s, during the 1870s, he came of age politically about 1880. At that time, the Democratic Party remained the party of secession, the party of the rebellion, the party of opposition to all things that good unionists stood for. In addition, the Democratic Party in New York City was the party of Tammany Hall, of Boss Tweed. It was thoroughly corrupt. So Theodore Roosevelt had no choice he was going to go into politics but to go into the Republican Party. But the trouble was he didn't agree with anything that the Republicans stood for. Now this is going to be extremely important in Roosevelt's career because he is constantly going to be at odds with the leaders of his own party. And it's going to mean that he becomes president only by uh, an extreme circumstance that almost nobody but one person who I'll get to in a minute foresaw. Anyway, so Theodore Roosevelt is this guy who has a political ambitions. We're talking now the early 1890s. He has political ambitions, but he just can't get a nomination. He can't get elected. He occasionally gets a nomination from the Republican Party when it's clear that this particular election is a hopeless case, and they simply need to have somebody up there to take the fall. So he does it. 
but he makes his name as a federal civil service commissioner. Federal civil service commissioner. This is the guy to make sure that all the rules are, all the boxes being checked off when civil servants get hired. He became a police commissioner in New York, which was, well, it gave him a certain publicity because Theodore Roosevelt was a publicity, you could call him a publicity hound or a publicity magnet, but he was great copy because he always said outrageous things and he did outrageous things. And he attracted reporters. Jacob Reese, the muckraking reporter, used to follow him around, actually led him around through the streets of New York at night. As a police commissioner, his job was to root out corruption in the police force. And so they would start out on their rounds at about 12 o'clock at night. Typically, Theodore Roosevelt would go to some fancy dinner party in Midtown. And then Jacob Reese would come knocking on the door. And they'd all they'd turn up their collars and pull their hat brims down and then head out into the night. And they would be out all night. And Roosevelt and Reese would show Roosevelt where all the bad cops were. And Roosevelt would sneak up behind them. And in fact, it got to the point where this is when Roosevelt's trademark became his eyeglasses, because he had these very thick eyeglasses, and his teeth. Did you ever reflect on the fact that Theodore Roosevelt is the first president whose teeth you have ever seen? <laughs> have you noticed that? In fact, if you look at the photograph that is out in front of the library now, it's got you know, Theodore Roosevelt with all those teeth. Do you know why that's so? Well, two reasons. One is good genes. And the Roosevelt family had good teeth, because most people, Americans, you know, uh, Brits, everybody else, by the time they're 35 or 40, had really bad teeth. And so when they had their picture taken, they kept their mouth shut. The other thing was it has to do with the development of photographic technology. So that when Matthew Brady was taking pictures during the Civil War and shortly after, the, the shutter speeds had to be so slow to get a good picture that somebody had to basically sit still. And as you all know, it's really hard to sit still with a frozen grin on your face. So it's easier just to have a, a sober view. Well, Theodore Roosevelt was of that first generation that where candid pictures could be taken. And when Theodore Roosevelt was on the stump, now his was chomping those teeth, in fact. With Theodore Roosevelt, somebody once said, oh, and this is, now, Theodore Roosevelt might also be the first president you've ever heard speak. I think there are actually some audio recordings of William McKinley. I haven't heard them. I have heard Theodore Roosevelt's voice. And this is one. Do you remember the first time, if this has occurred to you, you ever heard a recording of your own voice? How odd it sounds? Well, Theodore Roosevelt was the same way. Theodore Roosevelt, this is the, the promoter of the, the strenuous life, you know, the bully pulpit, the one who's out there climbing mountains, shooting rhinoceros, and doing everything else. He had this oddly high-pitched voice. And it just does not sound like Theodore Roosevelt. He also, according to people who knew him, had this odd, well, what in our day and age would probably be called a speech impediment, where he somehow, he would kind of snap off the words. And in fact, somebody once said that listening to Theodore Roosevelt speak was like listening to somebody chomp 10 penny nails. Anyway, but by all accounts, he was a riveting speaker. Um, but anyhow, so he, is, he was highly valued as a, a supporter of the Republican Party. So every time the Republicans had a, an election, and this, of course, was in the days before radio, before television, before you could multiply the images of the candidate himself, when people ran for office, they had to get stump speakers. And Roosevelt was great. He was the attack dog of the Republican Party. In the campaign of 1896, he utterly trashed William Jennings Bryan. But he simply couldn't get elected. 
Well, he did want to get the attention of the world. And so he began, well, he wrote histories. He wrote opinion pieces for journals. He wrote reviews of books that he thought would be influential or that he wanted to be influential. His was one of the first reviews, the most widely read reviews, of a book by Alfred Thayer Mahan, uh, which was published in 1890. It was called The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. Mahan was probably the first of a breed that would proliferate during the 20th century, the defense intellectuals. And Mahan was saying that the United States needed a big navy. And Roosevelt said, you bet it does. And so Roosevelt wrote this review saying this is the most important book that's been written in generations, and everybody ought to read it and ought to become the basis for American policy. So Roosevelt, during the 1890s, in part, in part because of conviction, but in part because he realized that this would advance his career, became a proponent of what he and Mahan and Roosevelt's buddy Henry Cabot Lodge and a couple of other members of Congress, Albert Beveridge, for example, senator from Indiana, what they called their large policy. It was a policy that would increase America's influence on the world stage. The 1890s was, you could call it the golden age, if golden's the right word, the golden age of world imperialism. It was a time when the European empires were snapping up colonies left and right. In 1880, to, to take the best example known at the time by historians, in 1880, the continent of Africa was largely untouched by Europeans. By 1900, the entire continent, with the exception of Ethiopia, had been claimed by one European country or another. It was called the scramble for Africa, and it seemed to foreshadow a scramble for the whole world. First Africa, then who knows, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, even parts of the Americas might be carved up. China might be carved up. Nobody knew. Theodore Roosevelt, Mahan, Lodge, and the small group, the, the closest analogy I can draw to this group would be the group called the neoconservatives in the United States from the 1990s until now. A relatively small group of, you could call them intellectuals, at least they make their mark through <laughs> conveying, purveying ideas. And they contend the United States needs to use its influence to expand American power around the world by military means if necessary. Now, it was against the background of this agitation for a bigger policy, for a bigger navy, and it was against or it was out of the experience of the Republican Party in the election of 1896 when Theodore Roosevelt had done yeoman service on behalf of William McKinley that when McKinley won the election, Theodore Roosevelt was in line for another appointed position. No, no, they're not going to elect him to anything, but they might appoint him to something. And so he landed the job of Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Now, the Navy Department in the 1890s was the most important department for American military affairs. The, American, the, the Navy Department and the War Department were separate, but the War Department only really kicked into gear when the United States was at war. The Navy Department, given the nature of naval warfare, if you're going to prepare for a war in the Navy, you have to build ships years before. It was the standard practice in the United States to, if you went to war, to create an army on the spot. There was no large standing army. So the number two position at the Navy Department, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, was really a big deal. If you were a person who wanted to put your ideas regarding America's foreign policy into effect, especially 
since the Secretary of the Navy, the boss, was somebody who was a politician, had no particular expertise, and not that much interest in actually running the Navy. Someone also, his name was John Long, who was also sick a fair amount of the time, took long weekends, and essentially turned over the operation of the Navy Department to Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt, the best analogy I can draw to Theodore Roosevelt was to um, Paul Wolfowitz, when Wolfowitz was deputy, until recently, when he went on to the World Bank. He was deputy secretary of defense. The person who really ran the department, Donald Rumsfeld was off sort of making policy, but uh, Wolfowitz was the one at staying at home and making sure that the soldiers got to where they were, got to go, and they had the weapons where they needed them. That's what Roosevelt's job was. His job also, turned out, was to agitate for actually using this Navy. It was part of his idea that the United States needed this large policy, but it also responded to, and this is something that was, well, for Roosevelt's purposes, it was utterly coincidental, almost accidental. There was this, how shall I describe it? A nationalist revolt in Cuba. Yeah, you could call it that. Cuban nationalists. Cuba was Spain's colony in the 1890s. And there were a bunch of Cubans, not all of them, there were a bunch of Cubans that thought Cuba ought to be independent. And these Cuban nationalists launched an uprising against Spanish rule. The Spanish tried to suppress the nationalist uprising. And they did so by means that are fairly common in trying to stem insurgencies. It involved various kinds of counter-guerrilla warfare. But it led to a number of atrocities. In fact, Another way of describing what was going on in Cuba by about 1896 or 1897 was there was a humanitarian crisis in Cuba because the Spanish military, in order to preserve Spanish authority, Spanish rule in Cuba, had launched this anti-insurgent war that targeted or at least victimized large numbers of non-combatants. There was a, the policy was called reconcentration and the peasants were taken off of their farms and herded into camps where they could be kept an eye on. The result of this was that tens of thousands of people died of disease. And so the American government was faced with, 90 miles off of Florida, was faced with the prospect of seeing tens of thousands of innocent civilians die at the hands of Spanish authority. President McKinley came under all sorts of pressure to do something about it. Now, William McKinley was a reluctant warrior. The, the question, well, one of the discussants this afternoon made an interesting point about how Ulysses Grant had been pressured to go to war on behalf of a previous generation of Cuban nationalists in 1869. There had been an earlier version of this nationalist war. But Grant refused to do so in large part because Ulysses Grant, having been a general during the Civil War, knew what war entailed. And he thought this is really the last resort. And it is fairly common in American history for the generals who get elected to the presidency to be the most reluctant to use American military force. And you can trace it from, well, certainly Grant to Eisenhower. You know, Eisenhower is a general, and he refuses to send American forces into battle. Anyway, then the question arose after this discussion, well, you know, the United States did go to war the second time around. Um, that is, the United States ultimately did go to war for Cuba in 1898. And why was this so? What changed? 
Well, actually, I would suggest that one thing that changed was that Ulysses Grant had been a general. William McKinley was only a major during the Civil War. Now, what does this mean? Well, I should tell you that William McKinley was reluctant to go to war, in fact. And his argument against going to war was, he said, he told one of his assistants, he said, I have seen war, and I have seen the bodies stacked up like cordwood. And he thought, the United States will not go to war for any but the most dire reasons. However, William McKinley, having been only a major, did not have the military credibility that Ulysses Grant had, that Dwight Eisenhower had. If Ulysses Grant said, I don't think we should go to war, there was nobody who could say, you're wrong, Mr. President. I know more about war than you do. No, nobody outranked Ulysses Grant. Dwight Eisenhower could say the same thing in refusing to send American military aid to the French in Indochina. You can't outrank Dwight Eisenhower on military affairs. But William McKinley largely got pressured into war. And in fact, a lot of it had to do with Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt was banging the drums for war constantly. Theodore Roosevelt, in 1897, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, went down to the US Naval War College, recently established as a place for America's naval officers to get some education. Actually, to get some post-secondary education, I guess, postgraduate education. Anyway, and he gave a speech. This is his famous speech in which he says that the greatest glories of peace pale beside the glories of war. And he said that any nation not willing to go to war will lose the manly virtues that will give it respect in the world. This is a speech that's often quoted to show that Theodore Roosevelt was a warmonger. And I believe that every word he said was sincere. Roosevelt believed that stuff himself. It is significant, however, to note that he never said anything quite like it again. Because Theodore Roosevelt understood that if you are merely an assistant secretary of the Navy, you've got to shout to get your voice heard. You know, Theodore Roosevelt was the one of whom it was said, and actually he first said it, that uh, his policy as president was to speak softly and carry a big stick. And some people, some historians, who will look at Roosevelt and quote back something like this Naval War College speech and various other things that he said, for example, during the First World War. I say, what do you mean? Roosevelt didn't speak softly at all. Oh, yes, he did. When Roosevelt was president, he understood that he didn't have to speak loudly at all. When he was president, he was very circumspect about what he said. He was so circumspect, in fact, that he created what most people would consider an artificial distinction between Theodore Roosevelt and the president of the United States. And if he was going to say something as Theodore Roosevelt, and a reporter reported as something said by the President of the United States, Roosevelt would deny having said it. He had this rule. I mean, basically the distinction between being off the record and being on the record. And what Roosevelt claimed was that when he spoke as President of the United States, he would speak in public. And he would often write his messages down. In those days, the, the equivalent of the State of the Union Address was a written message delivered by hand by a courier to a clerk of the House and the Senate in December of every year. It was only after Woodrow Wilson became president that the State of the Union was a spoken address. Anyway, and so Roosevelt insisted that what he said as president he would say in public. But he talked to reporters privately all the time. And one reporter from France who wasn't in on what the ground rules were, he reported something that Theodore Roosevelt had said and wrote it up in the paper. And Roosevelt denied having said it. And the reporter came around and said, Mr. President, how can you deny having said it? You know you said it. I was there. 
Mm, you said it. He said, I said that as Theodore Roosevelt. I did not say that as President of the United States. <laughs> anyway, he understood the distinction. Okay, so Theodore Roosevelt is agitating for war. In a way, now you have to wonder what William McKinley was thinking here. Because William McKinley was trying, well, he certainly looked like he was trying to avoid war. And I think, honestly, he didn't want to go to war. On the other hand, he didn't rein in Theodore Roosevelt, who was openly agitating. In fact, you could say he was almost being insubordinate on this issue. I, I suppose the best way of interpreting this is that McKinley wanted to have it both ways. He wanted to have, he wanted to see how the idea played out. But Roosevelt had a friend, Leonard Wood. Leonard Wood was a buddy that Roosevelt had met some years before. Wood was a US Army doctor. He was also a physical, fit, physical fitness fanatic, as Theodore Roosevelt was. And the two of them used to go on long rock walks through Rock Creek Park in Washington. Leonard Wood also happened to be President McKinley's personal physician. And he was as much a war hawk as Roosevelt was. And during the late autumn of 1897 and spring of 1898, uh, Wood would go up to the White House. And McKinley had a good enough sense of humor that he could joke about this with Wood. Because he knew that uh, Roosevelt and Wood were agitating kind of behind McKinley's back for war against Spain. And so Wood would come up to the White House and McKinley would say, well, uh, Colonel Wood, uh, have you and Theodore Roosevelt declared war yet? And Wood would say with a straight face, he said, no, we haven't, Mr. President, but we think you ought to. <laughs> well, finally, a variety of things happened. The United William McKinley sent the USS, the battleship USS Maine to Havana. It exploded mysteriously. Roosevelt was one of the first to insist that it had to have been the work of the Spanish. It must have been a Spanish mine or a torpedo or something. Now, as a matter of fact, it almost certainly was not. But nonetheless, it provided an occasion, it provided an excuse for McKinley to put pressure on Spain, ultimately leading to a US declaration of war against Spain in April of 1898, which was exactly what Theodore Roosevelt wanted. And then, and then Theodore Roosevelt did what nobody in his right mind in Roosevelt's position should have done. He promptly resigned as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, just at the point when he could have really done some good for his country. After all, he was the one who knew where the ships were. He had already sent out orders to Commodore George Dewey. In the event of war, in the event of war against Spain, your orders are to go to the Philippines and sink the Spanish fleet in the Philippines. And at that time, nobody else was thinking about the Philippines. The Philippines happened to be another Spanish colony. Roosevelt was thinking about it. And the war that Roosevelt had pleaded for, had agitated for, had come. And what does Roosevelt do? He abandons his position. Why? Of all things, so he can go fight personally in Cuba. And why did he do this? not for the good of his country. He knew perfectly well that he would be of much more service to his country had he stayed in Washington. No, it was entirely for personal, selfish reasons. Now, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have done it. People do all sorts of things for personal, selfish reasons. But he knew, and all of his best friends, all of his professional advisors said, what are you doing, Theodore? Don't give up this job. This is important to the country. No, no, he said, for all these years, I have been saying that war is the test of the nation. War is the test of man. And he always had, in the back of his mind, oh, one thing I didn't tell you, was that Roosevelt was sick when he was a kid. And so as he grew up, he always had to suffer the taunts of his playmates. And, and there was this whole question of, what kind of man are you anyway? All right. 
Everybody knew, or at least Theodore Roosevelt thought he knew, that the real test of a man was the ability to stand up against enemy fire. So he said, he said, there's nothing that could have stopped me from going to war. So he resigned from his Navy position. He joined the, well, the Rough Riders, the Volunteer Cavalry Unit. And this is well covered. There's lots of good stuff upstairs in the Roosevelt exhibit. You should go take a look at it. And he got his opportunity because he really, oh, I didn't tell you this too, that <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt put this, his desire to go to war above everything else, not simply the national interest, but above family interest. His wife, Edith, was appalled at the idea that, she, that he should be leaving. They had six kids. She herself had been deathly ill just weeks before, and he essentially raced away from her, well, what might have been her deathbed to play out what a lot of people would have called this adolescent fantasy of going to war. Well, he did. He went off to war, and he covered himself with glory. How did he cover himself with glory? Well, there's no question that he did behave quite gallantly in, well, his one day of fighting, what he, what he called his crowded hour. And he wasn't exaggerating too much. The battle didn't last a whole lot longer than that. And he really did behaved, no question, he was brave, I mean, it's almost reckless. And he led his men through the galling fire of the, the enemy. Well, the other thing he did to ensure that he would be a military hero was he had this whole gaggle of war correspondents following behind him. And to make sure that they got the story right, he wrote it up himself. Theodore Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt was essentially his own embedded reporter. And his account of the Spanish-American War, which was serialized first and then published very quickly as one of these hot-off-the-press books, the Rough Riders made him famous, made him a hero, a hero so that he was whisked home from the battlefront. This, the, the war ends in, eight, in August of uh, 1898. And whisked home from the battlefront in time to run for governor of New York in the autumn of 1898. He apparently didn't have time to take off his uniform because he campaigned in uniform. Well, obviously, the whole idea. Oh, and his Rough Riders followed him around. And they had the one guy who would blow the bugle charge at, at the campaign rallies. So Roosevelt won by virtue of what? Well, it turned out that the New York political machine at the time was, the Republican machine was up to its neck in scandal. And Tom Platt, the New York boss, needed somebody to put a new fresh face on the party. And so Roosevelt seemed like a good person. He was famous, his name was in the news, and he had little experience in politics, and Platt thought he would be rather pliable. So Platt put, this was the, this was the, this was the only time when Theodore Roosevelt had the support of the Republican regulars, the Republican machine, because they needed him and they thought that he would be a good placeholder for them. So he gets elected, not by a large margin, but he does get elected, and he promptly sets about convincing Tom Platt, the Republican boss, and everybody else that it was Roosevelt who was governor, after all, and not Tom Platt. And it took Platt about a year or so to figure out that Roosevelt wasn't going to play ball. So Platt decided, asked himself, what can I do about this? How can I get rid of this rambunctious governor? And he has this brilliant idea. I know I'm going to promote him. Let's make him well, let's put him someplace where he'll never be heard from again. Let's make him vice president of the United States. <laughs> you have to remember that in the 19th century, the vice presidency of the United States was a springboard to nothing but oblivion. 
Vice presidents didn't go anywhere. If you wanted to be, if you wanted to know where the stepping stone of the presidency was, you would look to the governorship of Ohio or New York. In an earlier day, you'd look to the secretaryship of state. But vice president, this was not next in line by any means, except if something happened to the chief executive. And Mark Hanna, who was McKinley's manager friend, who was a national Republican boss, resisted very vigorously Roosevelt's nomination to be vice president in 1900. And he said to those people who are trying to force Roosevelt on the party, don't any of you realize there is just one life between that damn cowboy and the White House? <laughs> well, in fact, that one life ended abruptly. Actually, not that abruptly. It took a while for McKinley to die. He was assassinated in September of 1901. And Theodore Roosevelt became president of the United States. Now, this is one of those cases. There's, this is one of those cases where this was the only way Theodore Roosevelt could ever have become president of the United States. And I would contend it's sort of, an, uh, I would see a parallel to the way Lyndon Johnson became president of the United States, but that's a subject for another day. Johnson had other disabilities in terms of getting elected. Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt could not have gotten the nomination of his party for president. He could get a nomination for vice president, which was considered to be relatively harmless. But once he was president, then, okay, things changed. Because as president, he commanded the patronage. As president, he could hope to control, for example, the Republican National Convention. But it wasn't automatic that he was even going to get the party's nomination in 1904. But he was an astute enough politician that he was able to manage his nomination and his election in 1904. However, in what has sometimes been considered to be, I don't know, an act of hubris, uh, just misjudgment, Roosevelt on election night, 1904, when he won the greatest popular majority in American history until that time, Roosevelt, I have to point out, was the most popular political figure of his time. He was better at getting votes than anybody between, oh gee, I don't know how far you'd have to go back. Andrew Jackson, probably. There's a connection. Andrew Jackson and Franklin Roosevelt. OK, anyway. But Roosevelt announced on election night in 1904 that he would count his three and a half year first term as the equivalent in the Washingtonian sense of only being president for two terms uh, as a first term, as a full term. And therefore, he would not run for re-election in 1908. His wife, Edith, was aghast when she heard this. And Theodore Roosevelt himself later said he would give his right arm to take back that statement. Um, but he didn't. And so he left the White House um, in 1909, after the election of 1908. He certainly could have been nominated, re-elected in um, 1908, but he didn't run. Instead, he went off to Africa, where he shot that rhinoceros and, uh, what, 11,382 other Large beasts, beasts large and small. And he immediately began thinking about how he could become president again. I actually am going to wind this up quite soon. We're getting toward the end. Uh, and, uh, but he, he soon realized that he missed being president. This is a problem for the United States. What do you do with retired presidents, especially if they're young and energetic? Um, you know, we're, we're going to find out with uh, Bill Clinton. Because people get to be president. They're talented people. they got energy. And if they retire when they're relatively young, you have to find something for them to do. Theodore Roosevelt could not find anything to do. Well, he slaughtered the beasts of Africa, 
And that kept him busy for a while. But as soon as he got back to the United States, some of his old friends, who were aghast at what his hand-picked successor, William Howard Taft, had done to what Roosevelt had accomplished in office, began whispering in his ear, you could be president again. And so Roosevelt had to figure out a way to get out of his no third term promise. And he came up with, I don't know, you decide if it's plausible or not. Well, what I meant was no third consecutive term. And he, he used an analogy. He said, if I'm sitting, and he really, honestly, he said this. He said, if I'm sitting at breakfast, and I've had two cups of coffee, and you come along and ask me, would you like another cup of coffee? And I say, no, I wouldn't like a third cup of coffee. OK, you don't give me a third cup of coffee. And I get up from breakfast, and I go about my business. Well, if I come back tomorrow, am I bound by my answer that I don't want another cup of coffee? No. Anyway, so he decided to have another cup of coffee to make a run for the presidency in 1912. But what he discovered was that he still had no influence with the Republican Party, with the bosses who still controlled the nominations. That was in the days when primary elections were just getting started, and he trounced the incumbent, William McKinley, in the primaries. But the primaries didn't control the nomination. Taft controlled the nomination when they went to the nomination. Theodore Roosevelt was left out in the cold. So what did he do? Did he accept his defeat gracefully? No. It wasn't in Theodore Roosevelt to accept defeat gracefully. Instead, he bolted the party and ran for president on the progressive or bull moose ticket. Now, I'm not sure if he ever killed a bull moose. Probably did. But anyway, um, and he lost. But what he did do was to guarantee that the Republicans would lose too. It was an exercise in egotism. He knew he couldn't win, but he felt, or at least he persuaded himself, that it was something that he had to do for principle. Well, what happened was, of course, that he guaranteed the election of Woodrow Wilson. And, Wood and Theodore Roosevelt was OK with the election of Woodrow Wilson for the first two years of Wilson's administration because nothing much of importance was happening. And then that irony of fate that Wilson referred to kicked in because in August of 1914, Europe went to war. And all of a sudden, you can see this in Roosevelt's letters, Roosevelt all of a sudden begins to resent most bitterly that Woodrow Wilson is president and he's not. Why, you ask? After all, Roosevelt had had his chance. Roosevelt was a good enough historian. Roosevelt wrote 40 books of history and read thousands. He knew enough history to realize that the great presidents, paradoxically enough, that the great presidents in American history, the ones who are perceived as great by historians, are presidents under whom you would not have wished to live. Because they are presidents who presided over disasters, over crises, over, well, who were the great presidents? You know, the, the two greatest presidents, by all historians' accounts, are Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. And, you know, the Civil War might have been a heroic time, but it was a disaster for the country. And what did Franklin Roosevelt have to his credit? Well, the Great Depression and World War II. This is not good times. Roosevelt understood, however, that if you were president during one of those crises, you too could be considered great. Roosevelt looked back on, Theodore Roosevelt looked back on his own presidency, and he realized he suffered historically 
from the success of his presidency. <laughs> Roosevelt's years in office were a time of peace and prosperity. That's no recipe for a historic reputation. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson, simply by virtue of being president during wartime, would have the chance to be considered a great president because he could leave his mark on history. And it's at that point that Roosevelt begins to berate, to slander Woodrow Wilson, to speak about Woodrow Wilson in the most unflattering terms, unflattering both to Wilson and to Roosevelt. Who, Roosevelt undertakes efforts that could almost be called seditious. He is doing everything he can to undermine Woodrow Wilson. The United, he, first, his biggest complaint is that Woodrow Wilson is not taking the United States to war fast enough. Roosevelt said that he would have taken the United States to war by the end of 1914. He's backdating things a little bit, because in autumn of 1914, he was still wondering whether the United States got, should go to war. But he certainly would have taken the United States to war faster than Woodrow Wilson had. Okay? Um, and then, when Woodrow Wilson did take the United States to war, Theodore Roosevelt decides, okay, this is my last chance for glory. Roosevelt decides to reprise his efforts from the Spanish-American War. And he goes to Washington, and he goes to the White House, and he requests permission. <coughs> to raise, well, during the Spanish-American War, he raised a regiment. Now he wants to raise two divisions and lead these two divisions to France. Woodrow Wilson takes one look at Theodore Roosevelt and realizes this is not going to happen. Because one of two things was sure to happen if Roosevelt went to France, and both of them were bad. One is that Roosevelt would go over there and cover himself in glory and come back and steal the election of 1920. The other is that Roosevelt would go over there and get himself killed and made a martyr. And that would be even worse, probably. So Wilson politely snubs Theodore Roosevelt. Says, sorry, this is going to be a professional effort by the professional military. And Roosevelt just can't live with that. And in fact, in the last year of the war, Roosevelt some did something that is almost almost disgraceful, and that Roosevelt himself would have gone apoplectic over if anybody had done it to him. After the election of 1918, in which Woodrow Wilson had asked the American, congressional elections, Woodrow Wilson had asked the American people to return a Democratic majority to the House and the Senate as a vote of support, a vote of confidence in President Wilson's war effort. It was a stupid move. Congressional elections are almost always determined by local issues, not by foreign policy issues. Wilson should have known better, but he couldn't help himself, and he did. When the Republicans won both the Senate and the House of Representatives, Wilson, I'm excuse me, Roosevelt, Roosevelt now, took this as a vote of no confidence in the president, and Woodrow Wilson was getting ready to go to Paris. The war was over now. Wilson's getting ready to go to Paris to represent the United States in negotiations for a peace settlement. And Theodore Roosevelt writes a letter to the Prime Minister of Britain and the President of France and to explain to them that under a parliamentary system, Woodrow Wilson would be out of office and that they should not cooperate with President Wilson because he had been repudiated by the American people. Well, this is about as close to sedition as you could get, basically sandbagging his own president. Roosevelt was so angry at the way this turned out. Now, in fact, despite all that, because of the way that the Peace Conference of 1919 turned out, the fact that Henry Cabot Lodge, Roosevelt's buddy, submarine, 
sabotaged, torpedoed the Treaty of Versailles, whoever got the nomination, the Republican nomination in 1920, was almost certain to win. And Roosevelt had the inside track despite having defected from the Democrats, from the Republicans in 1912. He had the inside track to get the Republican nomination. The only thing that kept him from getting the nomination and probably from being elected president was that he died at the beginning of 1919. I'm going to stop there. Anything else would be anticlimactic. I'd be happy to ask some questions. So let's, if you have any questions, I'll be happy to try to answer. Yes, in the back. itself equal to an older generation. Um, it seems to me that Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany is in a situation not dissimilar to that of Teddy, trying to prove himself equal to those who had unified Germany. And there's a wonderful speech by Pericles in the Peloponnesian War, the, the funeral oration, in which he explains to the Athenians that their fathers had saved Greece from Persian invasion, and the, their grandfathers had done that, and their fathers had expanded their empire. And the weird thing about the story is, what are we going to do next? Um, and, and so my question is, is there any link uh, between the way in which different generations try, try to prove their manliness to their parents, and especially to their fathers? and empire, and war. Well, I don't have a better answer to that than I think anybody in this room does, because it goes to the heart of an individual psychology. And some people, some people are like Theodore Roosevelt, in the sense that they believe that to prove your worth, you have to test yourself against a particular yardstick. For Roosevelt, the yardstick was your behavior under fire. Because that's what he had grown up hearing about with these tales of the Civil War. Now, one might argue that if somehow you could break that generational link, if you could go long enough without war, then the younger generation wouldn't have to hear the tales of the fathers and the grandfathers. If you could do sort of as Europe did from the end of the Napoleonic Wars until the outbreak of the First World War, it went without a general war. Now, there were lots of small-scale conflicts. But there was nothing like the, the millennia of wars between Britain and France, for example. And so Europeans began to think, sometime in the late 19th century, early 20th century, that war might, excuse me, that peace might be the actual default setting of society. In fact, by 1910 or so, they had begun to think that war was essentially impossible. So I, I don't know how it works for individuals. I don't, I don't get a sense that of this generation, my generation of students, for example, that I don't see them defining themselves by war. However, I will say this, that after, right after 9-11, I had a number of students who came in and said, graduate students, who were close to finishing their degrees, saying, I'm dropping out. I'm going to go join the military. 
Now, I'm not trying to say that these students were motivated primarily by an idea that this was a way to test themselves. But I think in certain, case, in certain cases, at certain times, there is this motivation for certain individuals. Sometimes it's more a matter of forgetting than remembering. Sometimes it's a matter of forgetting what wars actually caused. And that's why, if you have a Ulysses Grant, if you have a William McKinley, who can remember what wars involved, I think it's probably fair to say that nearly every war begins with an underestimate of how long this war is going to take and what it's going to cause. And it's also probably fair to say that if people could foresee at the beginning of wars how long it was going to take, how many people would die, what it would cost, then they would have serious second thoughts. But you can look at just about every war the United States has been involved in, and it almost, or maybe with the exception of the Spanish-American War, of course, in the case of the Spanish-American War, what wasn't expected was the follow-on war in the Philippines that lasted three times as long as the Spanish-American War and killed twice as many people. So some of the, I think in some cases it's a matter of remembering what your, the older generation said. In some cases it's a matter of forgetting what wars cost. And again, I really don't propose to extrapolate across populations as a whole, which is, I think it's probably significant that this happened, or this was Theodore Roosevelt's experience, and Theodore Roosevelt was in a position to help bring the war on. If Theodore Roosevelt hadn't gone into this, and I, frankly, I can't, I don't know enough about the background of Leonard Wood, or of Alpha Ferry Mahan, or of Henry Cabot Lodge, I'm sure they didn't have quite the same issues, but it does come up, and you do, you do hear a lot in the 1890s about, you know, this generation hasn't had a war. Some people have talked about this in the context of the outbreak of the American Civil War. In fact, one of my colleagues at the University of Texas has written a very provocative book called Patricide and the House Divided, where it's not exactly that we're trying to prove our manhood. Well, actually it is, because he uses the term patricide in a psychological sense in which the younger generation, the generation that comes of age with Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and the like, has to prove itself by, well, this might sound a little bit odd. It's actually a persuasive book when you read it. But um, it sounds a little bit odd how we're going to prove ourselves by destroying what we received from the founders. And so they, instead of preserving the union, they prove themselves by destroying the union. Anyway, this is really a matter of individual psychology, which is why I throw it out to my students, because I don't have the answer. And, and your interpretation of what the answer might be, I think, depends a lot on how you view the world and, and whether this means anything to you. One thing that will be very interesting to know, and this was something that progressives who advocated the vote for women contended, that women would improve the behavior of the political classes in the United States, in domestic affairs, but also in foreign affairs. Because women were presumed to be less interested in war, less moved by these kinds of decisions. Now, since women achieved the vote in federal elections in 1920, there has not been a reduction in the incidence of American intervention in, by military means around the world. So I don't know what this says. Other questions? Yes, sir. Okay. I tell my students that one of the distinguishing characteristics of empire is a desire to civilize. If you look at the Roman Empire or the British, they were not only trying to extend their power, but also to extend their civility. Um, do you think that um, Teddy Roosevelt had any desire to extend American culture to the territories that were under American control? Oh, he certainly did. Theodore Roosevelt was an early advocate of what could be called the Anglo-American project. 
And Roosevelt believed in, this is something that Winston Churchill certainly bought into, the whole idea that there was this entity called the English-speaking peoples. And they represented the apex of civilization. Roosevelt was extremely impressed with the British Empire and its capacity for and its desire to civilize India, to civilize East Africa, to civilize those other parts of Africa and wherever else the British flag waved. And Roosevelt had a number of friends who were British, who were in the British Foreign Service. Cecil Spring Rice had been his best man at his second wedding and a close collaborator and a close confidant in this whole question of what's the strategy, what's the structure of international affairs. Roosevelt was quite explicit in believing that both the British and the Americans had the capacity for and the obligation to share what they had learned about civilization with, with what the British were quite willing to call the lesser peoples of the earth. Roosevelt was not quite so willing to use that term, but he certainly believed it. This was true in the 1890s. It was true when Roosevelt advocated the annexation of the Philippines and Puerto Rico after the Spanish-American War. Now, in Roosevelt's case, that was actually as much what a rationale as it was the real reason. Roosevelt was essentially a realist at heart, a political realist. He believed in power, and he believed that the United States would benefit and the world would benefit from an extension of American power. Roosevelt believed until the end of his life that his greatest accomplishment, the greatest accomplishment of his presidency, was the construction of the Panama Canal. This was something that would benefit civilization for at least a century. However, while American self-interest was at the heart of it, and while self-interest was defined in terms of American power, he also believed that there would be I don't know whether you'd call it a side effect, or at least a corollary, of the extension of American power. So the Filipinos, in particular, would benefit from living under American rule. But this becomes clearest when Roosevelt goes off to East Africa on his post-presidential safari. And he, he is hosted around British East Africa by the local British imperialists. And he looks at what they've accomplished in Africa. And he, he compares, because he gets around far enough, to compare other parts of Africa with the parts of Africa that the British rule. And he's convinced that the British have uplifted the Africans. And if they continue to do it, it will be for the best interests of Africa. And Roosevelt becomes almost a shameless apologist for British imperialism. And in this case, since he's not talking about American power, he really is talking about the civilizing influence of this higher civilization. And one thing I should add about Roosevelt, oftentimes his, his advocacy of imperialism is interpreted in a racial sense. And I'm not going to deny that Roosevelt was a man of his time who had difficulty perceiving different races on a par with what he would have called the European race. However, Roosevelt did acknowledge that certain races or certain peoples could transcend their background. So, for example, at a time when very many people in the United States and in other parts of the European world looked down upon all Asians Roosevelt had the greatest respect for Japan and the Japanese for the reason that the Japanese had essentially bought into the Western model of development. And so under the Meiji Emperor, the Japanese basically said, we're going to become as Western as possible. And Roosevelt greatly respected the Japanese. At the same time, this becomes very clear during his presidency and during the Russo-Japanese War, he thinks that the Russians are a scandal essentially to the white race because they allow themselves to be defeated by the Japanese. They're a much larger country. They have a, what he considered an utterly corrupt government and civilization. So 
Roosevelt might have been racialist in his thinking. I'm not, I wouldn't go as far as say he was racist. Um, but he, he was willing to change his mind if certain peoples bought into the Western model. So I guess you could say he was, what would be the right term? He was sort of culture-centric rather than specifically ethnocentric. Somebody else had a question over here. Uh, yes, sir. Oh, great question. I happen to think that Roosevelt is a person who would never have achieved anywhere near what he accomplished if he had lived in the age of Prozac. <laughs> because Theodore Roosevelt, I'm, I have, I'm utterly convinced that Theodore Roosevelt was either, you could say, bipolar or at least a depressive who figured out that the only way of Call it self-medicating if you want, or of dealing with, or maybe denying his depression, was to keep busy. Now, in fact, I studied Roosevelt. I wrote a biography of Roosevelt. The thing goes on for 900 pages. And there's not a moment in there until the very end of his life that Roosevelt even sits down, who even catches his breath. And when you look at this guy, you cannot help but think, that he's running from something. Now, and there's a very telling comment that Roosevelt makes at one point. I don't, it's in a letter to someone. I can't remember exactly the, the circumstances. But he said, black care can never overtake a rider who gallops fast enough. And that seems to me to explain a great deal about Theodore Roosevelt. Now, what it explains is the fact that Roosevelt was indeed Often, he often gave the appearance of being manic. Theodore Roosevelt was never calmly happy. He was often exuberant. He was often buoyant. He was often ex exhilarated and manic. But he never was just calmly satisfied and happy. I don't know if Theodore Roosevelt was a happy man. And frankly, he probably would have considered that question almost irrelevant because, well, really, for a lot of people of Roosevelt's generation, for a lot of generations, happiness is kind of beside the point. You try to do something worthwhile. You try to accomplish some good in life. And if you get happiness, well, that's a bonus. But you don't go out looking for happiness. And frankly, I can't say that isn't a wiser way of conducting your life. The one time when Roosevelt slows down is after the death of his youngest child, when his son, Quentin, was killed during World War, II, World War I. He was a flyer, and he was shot down over France. And finally, it's as, though, it's as though that very tightly wound coil in Roosevelt has somehow become unsprung. And he, in fact, for the first time in his life, people who knew him, they were astonished to see him simply sitting there in his study, staring out the window, and hearing him say, poor Quinnican, poor Quinnican. That was the family nickname for Quentin. And it's probably no accident that he died of a heart attack just five months later. The energy had gone out of his life. And yeah, I, I think that the, that is a clear case of the, you're looking for a psychological explanation for what makes Roosevelt tick. And I think that's as good as any. Other, maybe we have time for one more question? One more? 
I'm not willing to stay as long as you're willing to. Uh, oh, Jiminy, uh, Chris, we got to stop right now. No. <laughs> One more question. Very good. Uh, actually, I think Roosevelt was. I think Ro I think Theodore Roosevelt was the great intellect to occupy the White House. I I would rate him at least right up there. Um, Peter Owen may take issue with this, with Thomas Jefferson, um, because Theodore Roosevelt had. Theodore Roosevelt was, he was not at the top of his field intellectually, but he was exceedingly voracious. He was, he could write with great energy. He didn't have any subtlety when he wrote. And you have to groan at some of his interpretations. But if you read his book, The Naval War of 1812, and this is the first book by a kid who's 22 years old. It was started when he was in college. And he had to teach himself everything. He didn't know anything about sailing. And he had to teach himself about sailing. And you know that, well, a lot of it is sort of the, the undergraduate taking on the gray beards of the profession. Because every third line is saying that so-and-so's got it wrong, and I finally got it right. But still, there's an energy in there. If you, read, if you read The Rough Riders, well, The Rough Riders is a memoir. Maybe that doesn't count. If you read his book, the multi-volume, The Winning of the West, it's really a hero tale of the winning of not what we consider sort of the, the Wild West, but the Old Southwest. It's about what's now the southeastern part of the United States. And it goes back before the, into the 18th century and into the, on into the Revolution. And he did his homework. Uh, the book was well-reviewed. And it's just a really good read. And one of the things that you get from reading Roosevelt is that um, you know, this is a guy who, has, who is full of energy. And there's a lot, that goes a long way. I'm not going to say that if any of my undergraduates or graduate students wanted to know, OK, what's the state of the art on the settlement of the old Southwest? I'm not going to put them onto Roosevelt first, but I might put them onto Roosevelt at some point, if only to convey some of the excitement of what historians do. Because he's obviously quite excited about it, and it comes across the page. Well, thank you very much. You've been a wonderful audience. I've got my pen in hand, and I hope to see lots of you out there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we promised you an engaging, intellectually challenging evening. And I think, once again, the Ford Library and Museum and in par partnership with the Howenstein Center have provided a wonderful program in having Bill Brands. I can also see why the University of Texas at Austin made a competitive offer to steal him away from Texas A&M. There's no question we would all be history majors if we were there. Uh, we encourage you to enjoy refreshments in the lobby. We have wine and other goodies. Uh, we would encourage you to take the first peek in Grand Rapids and Michigan at the wonderful exhibit upstairs. And by the way, according to the August issue of the Smithsonian, Teddy Roosevelt shot 11,297 animals, including 18 rhinoceri, if that's the plural, I'm not sure. Anyway, we have several animals there. And of course, this was on a serious expedition for the Smithsonian uh, for good scientific purposes. There are wonderful memorabilia that Jim Kratzis and his colleagues here at the museum have put together. Uh, so we encourage you to browse the exhibit, enjoy refreshments, take a look at the, uh, the books, and talk further with Professor Brands. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you.